Today, Hebrews 10 is where we're going to be. We were in Hebrews uh, for several months. We took a little bit of a break around Christmas time. We have a habit around here of observing Advent, taking the Christmas season, focusing on the coming of Christ. And what a wonderful time looking at the first three chapters of Matthew. Uh, It was deeply encouraging, but now we're just going to hop back into Hebrews. If you're visiting with us, we make it a regular habit just to pick a book of the Bible and then just spend time in that book, uh, myself and other Pastor Jared, we spend time just praying and saying, Lord, where do you want to take us? And he usually leads us to a book, and then we spend time studying it months ahead of time, sectioning it off, getting prepared and ready to um, look at the value and, well, way more than value, look at the truth of God's Word. And so we're going to dump back into Hebrews 10. We've got a couple weeks. We'll finish up Hebrews 10. And then I'm very excited. We're going to, since we have a little bit of space, we're going to take a long run into Easter. Um, And so I'm really excited about some things coming up. We're going to go back to Matthew. We're going to spend a lot of time in Matthew leading up to Easter. So that'll be our game plan. And now repetition isn't bad for you, but I always make you aware of where we're headed because God's word is so valuable to us. God's word is what we spend our time in. So I make you aware of those things so that as you're at home praying, thinking about the life of the church, maybe you'll pick up Hebrews. Maybe you'll read Hebrews this week. Maybe you'll get ready by looking at Hebrews 11. Uh, We always provide on our bulletin the next text that we'll be looking at. Uh, As you think about coming up after this, we think about Matthew. We just like to keep you up to date so you kind of know where we are headed. But here we are back in Hebrews. Now, we ended Hebrews back in November with, remember those let us statements? Not ahead of lettuce, but those let us statements uh, that provided for us, and and they were wonderful statements, but they provided for us a lot of clarity. Uh, They provided instructions to us of what it means to follow Christ. So we uh, were in chapter 10 last week. We're going to be back our last month, rather, or two months ago. Uh, We're back into Hebrews 10, but I just want to kind of get us up to speed. We looked at all those let us statements, and what was fascinating about those statements is that they they showed us how Christ being our great high priest, because the preacher of Hebrews had talked about Jesus being our great high priest for quite a while, but for some of us, it's hard to say, okay, uh, how does that impact my day-to-day living? And so those let us statements really did serve to say, well, what does that mean? Why is that a big deal to us as followers of Christ? So these three let us statements uh, explored the impacts, the effects of our day-to-day living. But I have to be honest, as I think back of that message, I failed to emphasize uh, in that sermon back in November the corporate appeal. Uh, I kind of keyed in on the specific things as us individuals, but I didn't really do enough justice of emphasizing the corporate appeal of the let us statements, right? I mean, let us, right? By nature, the word us is a corporate effort. So I just want to remind you, as we gather right now this morning, we, us, are approaching the throne of grace. We're doing what this text that we looked at many months ago was telling us. We, us, we are stirring up one another to greater love and affection for Christ, even down to the songs that we sing. Did you hear as we all collectively read God's word together? Read it together, us, 
together declaring those incredible truths from Galatians 2.20. That is us coming to God. That is us stirring up one another. We, us, light in the desert church, we gather to make much of Jesus and to encourage one another. Those let us statements, let us not forget there is a call to us corporately to do those things. Hence, our Sunday gathering. And I just want to highlight that because I want you to understand that when we gather, a lot is happening. Well, those let us statements, and I won't dwell a lot there because you can go back and listen to that message, but those let us statements, they actually give way to another very familiar part of Hebrews that we have seen as we spent time in Hebrews. Do you know these wonderful pastoral let us encouragements? You know what they give way to? Strong exhortation, or let me just say downright warnings. And this has kind of been how Hebrews worked, right? It's given us a lot of uh, explanation of God's word. It's given us a lot of connection to the Old Testament, expositions, uh, we oftentimes say. But it also takes the opportunity to exhort us and downright warn us. Because these truths that the preacher is unpacking uh, have some weight to them. And that's how the warnings work. Now, the section we're going to just kind of parachute in today, I just want to remind you, it actually, verse 19 to 39, kind of worked together. I've already mentioned, we slowed down on 19 to 25. We did that strategically because we thought, hey, these let us statements are really wonderful. Uh, They're very clear. Let's explore what this looks like. So we slowed down on those let us statements. But I just want to, I think it's important to keep in view. Let us moves into a strong exhortation and moves back out to a pastoral encouragement. So let's keep that in view as we think through this text together because we're going we're gonna to parachute in <laughs> into a very strong text, okay? So we're going to start our time together this morning looking at verses 26 to 31. So we're in chapter 10, 26 to 31. Now, um... The first section, 19 and 25, let me just read the last verse of 25 just to kind of whet the, uh, the, the appetite of where we're headed, right? So 25 just ended. Um, well, 24 said, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 25 then says, not, it gives us an explanation of what does that mean. Well, do not neglect to meet together. It's kind of how you fulfill, let us stir one another, we get together. Uh, Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. I'm just wondering if we could stop there, but then he gives a a bit of a qualifier of why it is so important to meet together. Why it is so important to do these let us statements. And he says something kind of weird. And all the more, so do this all the more, the strong encouragement, all the more as what? As you see the day drawing near. So not only has he said because of who Christ is, do these things, now he's ending the do these things with, hey, you should really consider these things all the more because there's this day a-coming. And so he's saying this encouragement, this pastoral encouragement, it has weight to it because of what he's about to say, all right? You kind of feel the movement, right? Do these things because Christ is sufficient, 
but do them because a day is drawing near. So then he gets into this day and why it is important for us to do these things. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, emphasis deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Simply meaning, as he said over and over again, Christ is sufficient to deal with sin. So to deliberately, well, there is no other sacrifice. It is Christ alone. That's the emphasis there, all right? Verse 27, but what is for that person? A fearful expectation of judgment. So, so this day must be emphasizing judgment, right? You, you need to press into these things because judgment is coming. Um, and he goes on to say, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 28. In verse 28, and, and I'm taking a little extra time to give some explanations because I don't want you to get too bogged down. I want to kind of you feel the weight of what he's doing here, right? Verse 28, and he's done this before, kind of the argument from the lesser to the greater, Right, he's done that a lot. He says, well, if this is true, well, then how much more is this true? Okay, so that's kind of what he's doing in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Old Testament standard, you do this, that was the result, right? And, and these people are well-versed in the Old Testament. Yes and amen, they say to that. Then he says, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot, very specifically the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. He's like, if this was true with Moses, who he's already said uh, Jesus is a greater Moses, how much more then if we treat Christ in this way? That's what he's getting at. You treat Christ in this way, how much more do you think that the Lord is just going to sit around? And that things would not occur, there would not be consequences. That's what he's getting at, all right? So verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's one sense of judgment. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Here's another sense of judgment. Verse 31, it is, fearful, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, it is upon this reality that the day is drawing near, that is back in verse 25 that I alluded to. It's on that reality that 26 to 31, it becomes a strong warning. The preacher feels like, oh, as I mentioned day, I better be a bit clear. You see, the preacher appeals to that day, as we learned as judgment. He appeals to it as the reason that he feels compelled to preach. Not only preach, but the expositions he's given, the encouragements he's giving, the exhortations, the warnings. It's because of these realities he feels he must stand up and be clear. See, this section that we said, uh, 19 to 39, it moves, as we've already said, pastoral encouragement, the three let us statements, to this real vivid language, right? Very strong exhortation, as we'll see as we end today, back to pastoral encouragement. It stands in the middle, right? It's almost this moment to say, these encouragements are so important because of this reality in the middle. See how he's building his argument? 
Let us do these things. And oh, by the way, you better do them because this is coming. And then he moves out to another encouragement we'll look at. You see, and this isn't the first time that he's done this. Verses 26 to 31, they're actually really similar to what we saw in chapter 6. Now, you can go back and look at that message on our website. But chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, this section functions exactly the same way. It is the exact same feel. We learned back there that that section was designed to awaken some people, to kind of knock on the door and say, hey, are you really, are you really hearing me, right? Do you really understand the implications of Christ? And this section seems to be the, doing the same thing, awaken people who are playing around in dangerous territory. Now, I don't feel compelled to fully rehash all that we discussed back in chapter 6, but I want to be really clear this morning. I've taken a little extra time to give little, little thoughts as we read the text, but I want to be really clear this morning, okay? This section is talking about a person who, after, uh, who had, uh, after week after week, been immersed in right teaching who had been immersed in right profession of belief in Jesus, someone who had been given the knowledge of the truth, someone who had actually professed that, the, that they are sanctified by the blood of Christ. That seems to be what is alluded to here, just like chapter 6. It doesn't seem to be talking about a person who is truly saved, but one from all external signs that seems to be sanctified. You see, the issue here for the preacher is exactly the same back in chapter 6, that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. It was sufficient that sins are actually forgiven. They're forgiven so much that our lives begin to be changed. Not perfect. But Christ's sacrifice was so sufficient that we would expect that when someone comes to Christ, professes that his blood has sanctified them, that their lives would be changed. Now, we all would agree there's a long journey of faithfulness, a long journey of obedience to Christ. But this seems to be what he's getting at. People who say that this is true, but yet something about their life doesn't match up. What is it about their life? Remember the word deliberately? Deliberately, that's what the text says. Deliberately going on sinning is really not the way of Christians. Do Christians sin? First one to stand in line, yes. <laughs> but there's something about this deliberateness, right? That go on sinning doesn't seem to be the way of Christians. Because if Christ has died once and for all for sin... And that's covered you. We would expect a slow, laborious work of God in our lives. Of course we would. So this deliberate thing for the preachers, he looks at people that he loves dearly. He looks at them and says, someone who begins to take on a willing action, willingly doing things with no regard. And let me be a little bit more specific. Rather, with no respect, are concerned to what Christ has done. What Christ has done with his shed blood and his broken body. You see, there seems to be a very obstinate attitude 
a very obstinate attitude that causes someone to just walk in sin, believing that Jesus really has no effect on them. Though they claim he does, and though they have knowledge of the truth, their life reeks of an obstinate attitude, I can do what I want. There's a certain arrogance and pride to believe that I don't really need to listen, and I know this isn't the best action, but I'm going to deliberately continue to walk in this sin. Now, I can hear some of you saying, well, Pastor, I've, I've struggled with certain sins for a long time. There's a difference in struggling, leaning on the Lord, working through things, and there's another proud, obstinate attitude going, I don't care. There's a, a big difference to deliberately, willingly walk in sin. Though you claim Christ has saved you, that Christ has redeemed you. You see, to go about life this way, as the preacher describes it, very vivid, right, is to trample underfoot Christ, to profane the blood that he shed, almost to make a mockery of it. Yeah, I mean, it's cool, Jesus, but eh, whatever. It just, it, it kind of puts the claim that Christ has saved me and redeemed me, it kind of just profanes all that he does when someone in obstinance willingly just disregards. It really is a dangerous place to live. To believe you can pursue sin with no consequences, it puts before others that you indeed perhaps don't know Christ. There is no other sacrifice for sin. It is Christ alone. And we lean into him. Now, I suspect that many of you, like, we don't want to think about that too much. But I think for most of us, well, that kind of makes sense, right? Most of us would like to look at the preacher and say, man, you're just so mean. Just so mean, preacher. But it seems to me what the preacher is doing is he's talking to brothers and sisters that he loves. He cares about. He's the one who's willing to sound the alarm. Hello? Hello? <laughs> now, I have too high pitch of a voice. I would assume he's like, hello, I don't know. He's sounding the alarm. He's saying, don't forget these encouragements I'm giving you. God is also going to judge. He wants to preach the whole truth and nothing but the truth. This is who God is. And he believes, as he concludes this section, it is a very fearful thing. A very fearful thing to fall into the hands of God's judgment. Very fearful. But there's something about God's judgment. I wonder if you notice in this text. Did you notice that there's two judgments kind of being talked about? One is clearly on God's people. We don't get a pass, right? By God's grace, we claim the, the blood of Christ. And, and, and God sees the blood of Christ, and that's how he judges. I mean, the text is pretty clear there, right? That's the judgment that is expected. But then there's this other word, judgment described as vengeance. It seems to me that judgment will come to those who not only reject Christ, not only those who reject his son, but to also those who bring great harm to God's 
people. Isn't that what vengeance means? I will repay? God will indeed repay. So, so what is going on here? The preacher wants to sound the alarm to let us not forget in the pastoral encouragement in pursuing God, let us not forget that he indeed judges. And he emphasizes two ways by which he exercises that. Vengeance, I will repay. You don't need to. I will repay. And oh, by the way, I will judge my people. It's interesting that the preacher seems to pull out these two ideals of judgment. Well, as we know about the people here, and as we're going to learn in the coming weeks, it seems the preacher does not want to have any suffering that they go through to cause his fellow brothers and sisters to walk away. That seems to be what he's doing. He doesn't want them in the, in the midst of difficulty, hardcore suffering. He doesn't want them to think that it's not worth it to stay the course. Why? Because God is a judge. God will repay. It is worth it. And he will look at your life. It seems to me this is what the preacher is desiring to do. He's not just a bully behind a pulpit yelling at people. What he desires is to say, hey, you need to deal in the truth of the matter. God is a judge. But we don't lose hope. But we don't lose hope in that because of, see all the chapters before chapter 10. All that Christ has done. It is worth it to stay the course. And what is interesting about this section, this incredible strong encouragement, what is interesting is, you know what? They have actually stayed the course before. Listen as we read the next section, verses 32 to the end of the chapter. So after this really strong encouragement, what do we get? But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you came to full knowledge, claimed Christ as your Savior, after you did that, you know what they did? Here's what the text said. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 37, he appeals to the Old Testament as he's been doing all along. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. There's a lot to consider in this section of Hebrews. I got to admit, 19 to 39, we could spend weeks on. 
But here in verses 35 and 36, I believe we arrive at the thesis statement of the entire book. Here to me is the point of everything that the preacher has been doing. Let me just read it again. Therefore, concluding statement, what does he want? Do not throw away your confidence. See chapters 1 to 9. Do not throw away your confidence. See the section above, he says, which, by the way, has great reward that we claim the blood of Christ and judgment falls on Christ. And then here's the second piece, for you have need of endurance. Here's what they're lacking. Here's what he's concerned about. He's trying to bolster endurance. Do you see it? Have confidence. The whole beginning of the book, now... You need to endure. Here we will see over the next few weeks the shift from the confident Christ, the confidence we can have in him that moves to endurance. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Notice the emphasis, there's more coming. (laughs) He's not afraid to say, oh, there's more to come. He looks at them, people he loves, and says, do not lose your confidence in Christ. Do not lose confidence in him, and you need to endure whatever hardships come your way. Apparently for them, endurance is what is needed. But he's saying, do you understand, that endurance rests upon a Christ who they can be confident in. They are confident that he actually indeed is their great Savior. He is the one that they needed. So he believes endurance is what you need, and it is all yours because your confidence is in Christ. It amazes me here. What an incredible preacher. Oh, what an incredible preacher uh, uh, the preacher of Hebrews is. It's amazing to me here because in chapter 6, right off the heels of the, a strong warning there, in the same way he brings a great encouragement. He does it here too. Reminds them of who Christ is. Reminds them of who God is. And then he moves into saying, oh, let's remember the previous beliefs, previous faithfulness. It seems to me that the preacher's not just mad at them or hates them. The preacher believes they believe. (laughs) He, He believes that, but he's fearful that this new suffering, apparently, that it might bring a lack of confidence. That, that this new suffering might make them wonder, is it worth it? We've done this song and dance before. It, is it worth it? And the preacher would emphatically say, oh yeah, because of who Christ is. And there is great reward in following God. They need to endure. They know how to endure. Why? Because they have endured before. Look at what they've endured before, verses 32 to 34. Let's just look at it. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partakers with those so treated. For you had compassion of those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is no small 
difficulty they've endured. Hard struggle. Publicly exposed? Prison? Plundering of their property? But yet none of that got to them. The text actually says that they joyfully accepted it all. So these are a people who are familiar in what it means to follow Christ at all costs. But here are a people who are in need of endurance because wouldn't we agree, it gets hard sometimes. Truth of the matter is, following Christ sometimes is hard. And we need to continually bolster our faith and bolster our endurance. But he points to a time by which they suffered and says, hey, by the way, you joyfully accepted all of that. Remember those days? How in the world did they joyfully accept the plundering of their property, being publicly exposed? What does that mean, publicly exposed? Made a mockery of, pointed at. How in the world did they joyfully accept that? Well, the text, the preacher being a good preacher, pastorally reminds them of why they could do that. The text points to what the preacher has been saying all along. Jesus is better. (laughs) he's better you actually live that out you believed it you lived it before it says specifically that they knew something what did they know they knew that they had a better possession take my stuff take it jesus is so much better i have a way better possession awaiting me in what christ has secured by his shed blood What Christ has done is way better than anything that you can do to me. What Christ has done in their mind, it actually abides. It doesn't lose its luster, nor can anyone plunder it. No one can take it away. He's saying you are doing what we have been talking about for nine chapters. Not that they had nine chapters when they read this letter first. You you did it. You believed That Jesus was absolutely better and so sufficient in his sacrifice that you have great promises awaiting you. As always, the preacher appeals to the Old Testament. He's been doing this all throughout. And here he does it again to say what? Let God judge. Let God take care of all of that. As my grandmother would say, it all come out in the wash. And there's an R in wash. We'll argue about that later. That the preacher is saying, the Lord will take care of it all. Let the Lord judge. Remember what he has done. Remember what you have in Christ. You are in need of endurance. And the only way you're going to endure is to look towards Christ. The Old Testament text that he uses here, there's quite a few, but specifically 37 and 38, they're really jumbled. There's like quite a few thoughts being thrown into there. But really in this section, what he is saying, what he is indicating, what he wants them to know, hey, by the way, the wait is short. Endurance is actually possible. Hold on. We're almost home. Hold on. And I know at times you feel like, the wait is short. Well, it seems like forever. But he's taking the understanding of God and saying, in the end, it's short. 
And he just reminds them, because God has got all of that taken care of, here's your response. All that is required of us, pursue righteousness and live by faith. That's, that's what's required of us. Pursue righteousness. Pursue Christ. Do what he actually says you should do. It'll be worth it. Live by faith. Trust him. We were exploring this morning in our uh, 9 a.m. Sunday studies, we were exploring faith and how essential. What's faith got to do with it? Everything. Looking to Jesus, taking our cues from him and not chaos if it befalls us. The preacher is being so clear and easy for them. Let God take care of all that. Pursue righteousness and live in faith. He wants him to know you, we cannot right all the wrongs. We cannot make others be favorable towards Christ. God brings the vengeance. God's the one who repays. God is the one who will judge correctly. So you, we, live in faith, trusting him. See how this bolsters endurance for the long haul. I cannot pretend to believe what you will encounter when you walk out those doors this week, next week, next month, December 2024. I cannot even come close to knowing. But what I can confidently say is that you can endure it. I can confidently say that. This text is preparing the people to endure. It's in preparing us to endure, to not shrink back, to borrow a phrase from our text. Christ has won. Christ will return. That's what all this is alluding to. There's promises. Great reward. Vengeance is his. Judgment will come. He will return. You see, these are the two great truths that compel confidence and endurance. Christ has won. See the previous 10 chapters. Christ has done the work. And then we begin to see, and he will return to bring judgment. See the few verses we just looked at. So what's the conclusion for the preacher? Verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. It's impossible to destroy us because our eternity <laughs> is just that, eternity. It's, it's impossible to destroy God. It's impossible to destroy God's people. Our inheritance awaits us. No one can go take it. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I don't know what it is for these people, but I think what we're starting to see and starting to kind of move towards understanding that they're in need of endurance. Maybe there's a tendency for this local gathering, if we kind of push, put all the pieces together, that, that maybe they're having a tendency to think, you know, let's just shrink back. Let's just lose hope. I, I don't know if I got confidence in Christ. Is he actually really sufficient? Because everything just seems crazy. Maybe there's a tendency to just retreat, go back. I don't know about all this stuff. I suspect it's not too unfamiliar to maybe some of us. But here, the preacher and this sorry old preacher is doing the best I can to take the word of God, put it before us and say, we are told to cling tight to Christ and endure. Because in the end, 
we cannot be destroyed. Nothing takes away all that Christ has done for us. You want to know what Christ has done for us? See chapters 1 to 9. He's done a lot. And the preacher is so bold to say, don't just hear what he says, believe it. Because God is a judge. He'll sort through your own thoughts and your actions. Don't think that you can just dismiss what Christ has done or what Christ has said. But you and I this morning, we can be confident that nothing can take away what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what is secured for us in the future. No one can take that away. I love the fact that Light in the Desert Church is a multi-generational place because some of you senior saints, you live in a way that just screams, oh, nothing can take Christ away from me. As health wanes, as your friends pass, as spouses come, or spouses go rather, as difficulty arises, there you are with grins on your face. <laughs> I can endure. There's a time period in my life where I really loved endurance sports. I really liked to figure out how far you could run and how far you could push yourself. You know what I realized in the midst of some of the most difficult moments? Literally, one foot in front of the other. <laughs> one foot in front of the other. I can do that. And then after I got that foot, though that was a struggle sometimes, it's, well, how about the next foot? One foot in front of the other. One foot in front of the other. And, and the, the preacher is saying, do not throw away your confidence. One foot in front of the other, because you know what? That one foot in front of the other is not wasted. It's not wasted to pursue Christ, to be faithful, because there's great reward. He says, yeah, you have need of endurance. So that, verse 36, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Faithfulness to Christ ends it is incredible, glorious of all promises being fulfilled. One foot in front of the other. And what's amazing is running is just running. <laughs> but following Christ has way greater implications. So to follow him, brothers and sisters, those visiting with us, if you're wondering if it's worth it, oh, it's worth it. Though the clouds of gloom like we see outside may be upon your soul today, it is worth it to put one foot towards Jesus and then to pick up your other foot and put another foot towards Jesus. It's worth it. See, the two great things that the preacher has wanted to do is build confidence so that there would be endurance. Verse 35 and 36 is the great point of this book. And this morning, we have a confidence rooted in Christ so that we can endure. Perhaps let's just look at a few summary statements. We are confident people because Christ is sufficient. That's been unpacked in this book. So that leads to we can endure because guess what? Christ is sufficient. There is a shift coming to now say, go, do, be, endure. Go put one foot in front of the other because Christ is sufficient. We learn that we are a confident people because our future is secured. Remember we looked at the, the, the old system 
And we looked at that the return of Christ meant what? Oh, he worked. (laughs) He comes back because his blood was sufficient. So there's a confidence that you and I have that our future is so secure. Tomorrow, you got no clue. What you do know is that Christ has secured eternity for us. So this gives way for the rest of the book. We can endure because great reward awaits us. We are a confident people because Christ's righteousness, we've learned this, has become ours. His obedience and his work has now become ours. Remember the old sufficient couldn't adequately deal? It couldn't quite make us righteous. So Christ comes along, does the work that we could not do, and now his righteousness becomes ours. So we're confident because of those realities, and it gives way. We can endure because God will avenge his people. Through the righteousness of Christ, we become the people of God. Our Father loves us beyond what you could ever imagine. He looks after us. He will make all things right. Brothers and sisters, we are in need of endurance. Why? Because I have no clue what next week holds. And that's probably a good thing. But what I am confident of is that Christ is worth it. If you're with us today and you're wondering about this Jesus fellow, please grab myself or other Pastor Jared or whoever you might have come with. We'd love to explain to you why we have so much confidence in this person because of the work. The person and work of Christ gives us confidence that we can endure. How is it that the martyrs go to their death with joy? Because their confidence isn't in this world. It is in what Christ has done to save and redeem them and what Christ has secured for them. Let's pray. Father God, you are gracious indeed. This morning in in some feeble, small effort, I hope that you have taken the preaching of your word and you have bolstered a greater trust and confidence in you that will work its way out into a long walk of endurance a long walk of faithfulness to you. I don't know in a room, even this small, what everyone is dealing with. But I pray that as we looked at today's text, that you've used it in a way to remind us that it is worth it. There's great reward in pursuing you. There's great joy in pursuing you. And so, Father, would you be with us this week? Would you encourage us? It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.